Hey guys, Jeff Deverter with Cloud Talk here. Now I've got something really special for you today. What you're about to hear is a brand new podcast brought to you by us here at Rackspace Solve called AI and You. Now it's hosted by Mark McQuaid. Now that name should sound familiar to you if you're a subscriber to this podcast. Mark's been on this podcast a few times last year talking about, of course, all things data science and machine learning and artificial intelligence. And he's super passionate about how to make it more accessible in our everyday business lives to help give our businesses an advantage utilizing this new tech. So I hope you'll give it a listen. I hope you'll subscribe to it. You can find it wherever podcasts can be found. So without further ado, here's Mark McQuaid's new podcast series called AI and You. All right, everyone, welcome to Rackspace Technologies' new podcast, AI and You. My name is Mark McQuaid, and I will be your host on this journey. I am a practice manager here at Rackspace within our data science and engineering practice. So our goal was to start a podcast in AI that was different, and we will try to step away from the academia behind it. Instead, we will talk through cool and exciting ways people are using AI today, in the real world, and in turn, how you can do the same. We're going to keep it loose, we're going to have some fun, and we're going to keep it exciting. Glad to have you along for the ride. All right, on today's episode, we're going to be chatting with Joe Davidson with Hugging Face. So if you don't know what Hugging Face is all about, I highly encourage you to check them out. They're doing some of the coolest stuff in the world right now in the NLP space. The Hugging Face Transformers library provides thousands of pre-trained models to perform tasks on texts, such as classification, information extraction, question answering, summarization, translation, text generation, and more, all in 100 plus languages. Their aim is to make cutting edge NLP easier to use for everyone and also democratize artificial intelligence through natural language. Let's dive in. All right, I'm here today with uh, Joe Davison, who is a research engineer uh, at an amazing company, Hugging Face. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Joe. Yeah, pleasure to be here. So, Joe, you know this is our inaugural episode uh, of our podcast, AI and You. Uh, so once we get to that Joe Rogan experience status and we get that Spotify money, uh, we won't forget you th- that you were our first ever guest, all right? <laughs> Split <laughs> all could... the ad revenue with me, right? Yeah, exactly. This could turn out to be one of the pinnacles of your career. No, I know it. And I'm thrilled and honored to be here. (laughs) So Hugging Face is doing some really cool stuff in the world of natural language processing. And we'll get into Hugging Face as a company later on in more detail. But first, I wanted to take a step back from what you do now in your current role and, and talk about, you know, how did you get started in the field of AI? And if you could just take us through your journey a bit. Yeah, so, um, I started out just as a computer science major. Uh, During my college days, I kind of had entrepreneurial ambitions and decided on some good advice from my dad and others that the best way to use my undergrad degree would be to go build some hard skills in computer science rather than just majoring in in entrepreneurship or or something like that. So that's 
really how I got into coding in the first place. It was kind of right as this deep learning explosion was starting to take root outside of the CS and machine learning communities. Um, when someone like me was able to pick up on that fact that it was happening and that it was very exciting technology. Um, at the time, I kind of just thought that deep learning was like this kind of elite tech that only really existed in labs at Google and the technology was secret and inaccessible to someone like me. But then I quickly found out that that actually wasn't the case, that it was actually very open and that there were a lot of uh, open source tools already being developed to um, make it accessible to a lot of people and found out that I even had a class that was going to be taught the following year uh, in my undergrad program. Um, so I was lucky in a lot of ways. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. So let's go into a little bit about NLP in general, natural language processing, right? Uh, me yeah. personally, I'm slightly obsessed with NLP these days, um, but I'll let you tell the audience exactly what, what natural language processing is. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the way I typically describe it to people is natural language processing is the study of making computers better at understanding written language. And that can include taking a piece of text and trying to extract some sort of abstract feature from it, or it can even include creating text like a, a chat bot or something where you receive text, which is the message that the user just sent. And then you generate some text, which would be the chat bot's response to that user. So really it's just the computer interfacing with natural human language. Yeah, I know you mentioned chatbots. Chatbots are, you know, I've been I've been really into chatbots since for the past few years, and uh, many, if not all, businesses could benefit from implementing a chatbot in some form or fashion within their business. Yeah, it's exciting technology, and I, I think chatbots in particular are something where we're still kind of coming around the horizon of, of usefulness. You know, it's more useful in some settings than others, but you can see how with a little few more years of development, how they could get to a place that would be really useful for a lot of different applications. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, and, you know, I see so many businesses nowadays using some form of NLP, you know, in one way or another, and that's just based on the sheer amount of data everyone has now, right? So many uh, businesses have or are collecting, you know, continuously this, this massive amounts of data, right? So, you know, that could be automatic speech recognition they're trying to do or speech to text for their massive amounts of audio files that they have, right? To, you know, sentiment analysis on, you know, maybe any kind of uh, social media streams or anything like that. So yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, we're, we're only really scratching the surface of what we can do in NLP today. Now, speaking of, you know, kind of where we are today, and what do you find the most interesting areas of NLP right now? Well, um, I'm a little biased because uh, one of them is a problem I've been working on, which is uh, how can you make use of pre-trained models when you don't have data that's specific to your task? Um, I think another one that is really interesting is text-to-text -text applications. And by that, I mean you have some kind of text input and the model needs to produce some organic text output that it produces all on its own. A really good example of this, that's probably the best known example is machine translation where you take in English text and the model has to interpret that, uh, condense it down to its meaning and then reconstruct it in another language like German. Okay, so that's a really interesting application, but there are also less well-known applications that are starting to, we're starting to get much better results than we've been able to get in the past. Um, and one of those uh, is uh, called abstractive summarization. And that is, largely what it sounds. Um, 
you know, you take in a news article and you produce a short two sentence summary about the, the content of that, that article. And that's something that we're starting to see a lot of improved results on in recent years. Yeah, summarization, I think is huge. I see it all the time, right? Oh, I have this massive amount of, 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 of you know, text, whether it be an article or it be some kind of, you know, taking it back to chatbots, uh, a user and a chatbot interaction, right? And it's this, it's, it's spit out into text and people don't want to read it all, right? So that summarization, yeah. I see it a lot. All right, let's get into, you know, you had touched on it briefly a bit there, the transformer architecture in general, right? So, you know, 2017, I believe it was June, Google releases the paper, attention is all you need, right? And thus begins the rise of the transformer. So what exactly is the transformer architecture? The transformer architecture is a particular type of neural network. It's a type of neural network that heavily utilizes a mechanism known as attention. And attention in its original form was simply a way to allow a model to sort of determine which words it should be paying most attention to when it's doing a task. So, so let's say we have a language model and the, and the job of a language model is to take in a string of text and predict what the next word is going to be. So it might receive like a hundred words and the next word it, it doesn't see it. And its job is to predict what that next word is. Okay, this is a really common way of training big models and giving them kind of general linguistic knowledge. So you can imagine how if you are predicting the next word of a string, there might be words in the substring before it that are more important than others for predicting that next word, right? So attention was a simple mechanism that just was a, a very kind of intuitive mathematical way of helping the model identify the previous words that it should be paying most attention to. Well, what the transformer did is it took this, this idea of attention to a whole new level and said, we're actually gonna make this the main workhorse of these models. So what we're gonna do is we'll have this neural network with a whole bunch of layers to it and at each layer, we will create a mathematical representation of a word that comes from the attention to all of the other words. It's a little confusing, it's a little wonky, and I don't mean to get so technical, but that, that was kind of the basic idea of if you take sort of this weighted sum of all of these, of, of all of the words in a sentence, that that might give you some basic starting point for the representation of the next word in that sentence. If you do that over and over and over again, layer after layer after layer, that gives you the transformer architecture. I, I wanted to touch upon some, some very big uh, transformer-based language models such as BERT and, and GPT. Um, and you know, BERT is, is uh, developed by Google and GPT is developed by OpenAI. Um, and can you just talk you know, quickly, real quickly through the similarities and differences between those two specific language models? GPT is a model by OpenAI. Uh, if you've heard about GPT-3, that's just that, the third iteration of GPT that they came out this, came out with this last year. And the idea with GPT-3 is it's just a traditional language model. You take in the last thousand words and you predict the next one. And then you slide the window over and you take that previous thousand words and you predict the next one. And you do that over all the text over the internet a whole bunch of times and you get a really powerful model. And the thing that it's really, really good at is generating text. So 
that's where you can, you know, get it to write fake poetry or get it to, you know, write articles, which by the way, has some uh, worrisome implications for things like fake news and, and Twitter bots and things like that. That's really where GPT signs. BERT is a different kind of model with a subtle but important difference. And the difference is instead of predicting the next word in the middle after this span of a thousand words that come before it, what you do is you take a, the span of a thousand words and you hide some of them in the middle. And the job of the model then is to figure out what those hidden words are. That's kind of a subtle distinction, but the reason it's important is because when the model is predicting one of these words in the middle of a sentence, it's allowed to see the words that come before it and after it. Whereas in the case of GPT, you can only see the words that come before it. That makes it really powerful for a lot of different kinds of tasks um, because when you're fine tuning on a, on a specific task, which again, we'll get into more in a moment, um, it allows the model to have the attention, as we mentioned, to have uh, to be able to see both the words following and the words preceding a given text in your sequence. I think I think all the all the rave is GPT, right? GPT three, it's all the rave. You know, it's it's kind of the sexier language model. But uh, I think you know, at, at kind of what you were saying there is, is Bert may in actual, actuality be more powerful than GPT. Yeah, as I mentioned, so GPT is probably better for text generation. So like creating text that looks like naturally generated human text. But BERT, despite not having as much hype around it broadly, uh, is by far the more commonly used model um, in terms of research, in terms of industry applications. Um, and that's largely because of this, this bi-directional mechanism that I mentioned. Yeah, for sure. And actually, I, I read an article recently where, you know, it said, you know, BERT engineer is now a full-time job, right? And and qualifications include some bash scripting, uh, some deep knowledge of PIP, um, maybe watching a, a video on YouTube of the transformer architecture, and then literally waiting for hugging face models to be released. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, tongue in cheek, but can you confirm or deny that's all it takes to be a BERT engineer nowadays? <laughs> well, um... I think there's some truth to that, uh, but I think it's also a little bit unfair to these people who uh, do a lot of work to take these models and uh, make them usable by doing really sophisticated, you know, technical optimizations to reduce the latency of these really big models and make them more efficient to use in the real world. So I think there is a, a sentiment of truth to that, which is what makes it funny, but um, I, I think it's still a difficult job. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so that, that, that'll lead me into transfer learning, right? Another thing, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm slightly obsessed with these days, right? I think the, it, it's extremely powerful, but first, why don't I let you describe what transfer learning is? Yeah, so transfer learning is basically a way of taking a model that's been trained on one task and using that model as a starting point to learn a new task on different data. So you can imagine if you have, let's say that you want to learn a sentiment classifier which is just a model that takes in a piece of text and tells you whether it's a positive or a negative sentiment to it. If you start uh, from scratch learning that kind of model, um, it requires an immense amount of labeled data so that the model can learn all of the different associations between the words, you know, what patterns indicate a positive sentiment and what patterns learn a negative sentiment. 
it has to learn everything from scratch. What transfer learning is, is it says, okay, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take this model that's already been trained on a whole bunch of other data. And it has nothing really to do with sentiment analysis, but the model has a, a lot of kind of stuff to start with already. It might already have some understanding of the English language and the different words that associate with each other. And maybe it knows that when you see the word happy, you're more likely to see the word positive. And when you see the word, you, you see a curse word, you're more happy to see the word negative. It, it kind of has a starting point of these associations. And what that allows you to do is learn something like a sentiment classifier with a lot less data because the model is not starting completely from scratch. And that's why when I talk about language modeling, like learning a model from all this text on the internet, that's part of the reason why that's so important because it's able to learn some pretty valuable associations that then serve as a really good starting point when you're fine tuning the model on your own data. Yeah, and I think it, it, the power really lies in so many pieces with transfer learning, right? You can't really say how powerful it is for one specific use case, right? It's it, it's really you know reducing training time, right? Uh, reducing you know computation requirements, right? These things are big, right? Uh, you know, and and it it kind of you know it mimics what you know what human and how humans learn really, right? It, it's a, we typically don't learn things from, from scratch, right? We, we rather build on some kind of prior knowledge that we have as humans. So it kind of takes after that fact. And I think that, you know, one of the biggest pieces too, I mean, if you look at certain things like in the NLP world, as, you, as we talked about there with Bert, right? And Bert was trained on what, over 3 billion words or something like that. Um, or, or if you look at the computer vision world, Right, and you look at you know some deep CNNs that have been trained on on the ImageNet data set, which is over fourteen million images. Right, how could how could someone actually do that? Right, the the, the layman person, right, the practitioner, the small business, even right, you would never have the resources, the time, right, the computation to actually perform that training yourself. Right, so being able to take advantage of transfer learning, I think, is is, is so powerful. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I like that you brought in the, the computer vision, the computer vision element of it as well, because that's really how I think transfer learning took off in the first place and how I certainly became familiar with it was like you said, um, if you want to train a, a, an image model to tell you whether a cat or a dog is in a picture, it's going to take a lot of data to, to learn a model like that from scratch, like hundreds of thousands or millions of, of images for it to learn the right associations. But if you train it to first identify a horse versus a giraffe, well, it's going to learn a lot to, of things about how to interpret an image. So it might learn to identify um, edges and shapes and colors, or it might learn to identify higher level concepts like uh, like fur or grass or trees, things like that that are useful for, for classifying a giraffe versus a tiger or whatever, might also be useful as a starting point for learning to identify a cat versus a dog. And so having that model as a starting point really reduces the amount of time that you have to train the model and reduces the amount of data that you need to train it. And that can be all the difference if you are not Google <laughs> and you don't yeah, have exactly. access to unlimited data and compute. Unlimited data, compute and money, right? Yeah. <clears throat> 
Perfect. So, so let's get into hugging face specifically now, right? Um, I, it's a, I, I mentioned it at the, at the top, a very cool company you work for. They're doing amazing things in the world of NLP. So can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what hugging face is all about? Yeah, I think uh, in a word, Hugging Face is about uh, open source NLP and machine learning. Um, we want it to be open. We want people to have access to it. And we want people to share their models and their data with us and with one another. Um, and so that's kind of uh, the core of our mission. The Python library that we first became known for at first was just a PyTorch implementation of BERT that allowed you to easily take these pre-trained weights that Google had released and use them for transfer learning. And as transformers took off, we started to add more and more models. So instead of just BERT, now we also have GPT and we also have, you know, all of these different models. We have like dozens of them by now. All of these different model architectures that can be easily accessed, used, manipulated, altered, fine-tuned, et cetera, by researchers or industry professionals, data scientists, anyone who, who wants to. Um, and on top of that now, we've also built a platform for sharing the models that you have trained with the community. So in some sense, it's kind of like a GitHub of machine learning idea where someone can take a model, say, say they even take BERT after it's been pre-trained and they can fine tune it on their sentiment classification task. And they can actually upload that to the community and then anyone else who wants to, who needs a sentiment classifier can just download those weights that that other person uploaded and start using them or fine tune them further on their own data. Similarly, we've also, um, we're, we're making a similar push with data and data sets. So there are a lot of NLP data sets out there for a whole bunch of different types of tasks and purposes from a whole bunch of different data sources. What we've done is built out a data sets library that allows you to download and process any of those data sets with a single Python API. So you can literally type load data set and then pass the string Amazon reviews and it'll download the Amazon reviews data set right to your machine and you can modify it and manipulate it the same way you would any other data set. Um, we did a really big community push recently where we involved our greatest resource, which is the community, in adding hundreds of data sets to our data sets library so that any of them could be used easily with this, with this API, like I mentioned. We, our goal was to hit 500 data sets, which we thought was pretty ambitious. And we were planning for us to have to do most of the work internally in the community to maybe kind of help and add a few models on top of it. But we were completely blown away um, by the amount of help that we got from the community. And it turned out that most of the models were actually, most of the data sets, excuse me, were actually uploaded and documented by community members. And we as full-time employees at Hugging Face were able to do far less than we anticipated we thought we could do. So now we're at the point where we have over 600 data sets that are part of this library that can be used and accessed. Yeah, you touched on there. I think that's 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 one of the the best pieces of, of hugging faces is the community, right? As you said, um, and it's the the ability to share 
share resources, share models, share data sets, right? Everyone has the, is trying to help each other really, right? Um, and it's that, you know, it's that piece that you guys, you know, you, you said, you know, democratizing NLP, right? That's kind of the goal of Hugging Faces is democratizing NLP. And I think it's fascinating. I really do. I think you guys are doing some really amazing stuff over there. Um, and you had touched upon, you know, uh, your, the Python packages, right? And, and it, I actually saw recently, uh, you guys are in the top 10 active Python packages on GitHub for 2020, um, number six, and you actually beat out pandas. So I was, I was really surprised to see that, uh, hitting the big time there, hitting the big time, beating out pandas. So, uh, that was actually yeah. great to see. Yeah. We've been really, uh, honored and really lucky, uh, that we've been embraced by the community and that so many people have thrown their own time and attention into, improving these libraries and making them what they are today. I, I like, it sounds almost uh, sappy, but it's yeah, really true. Like we wouldn't be where we are without the community making the contributions that they do. No, for sure. And you know, I hear, I hear people out there saying Hugging Face is, is one of the most important machine learning companies in the world now. So what do you think about that? What do you think about when people say that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a big question. Um, certainly, I think it's a really exciting place. And that's part of the reason why I came and, and joined the team because I, I thought it was an exciting group and I, and I wanted to be a part of it and lend what I could to the team's efforts. Um, I think more and more of business is being run online. More and more of business involves the sharing of written text. And I think it's difficult to imagine five, 10 years down the road, it's difficult to imagine many companies that wouldn't be deriving some fairly significant amount of value from having NLP technology powered by transformers that influences and strengthens the way that they do business. Now let's let's get into a little bit about some of the new cool things you guys are doing at Hugging Face. I, I you know I see that that you guys say your your most commonly asked questions are, I want to do this task, uh, which model should I choose, and how can I adapt that model to my data, right? So I I see there is a, a new feature coming out, right? Uh, full disclosure, I am on the wait list, so if you could bump me up on that, that would be great, right? So once we get yeah, off, you bump me, yeah, <laughs> and it's called <laughs> Auto NLP. Um, so talk a little bit about what, what auto NLP is. So auto NLP, uh, it's not an idea that we've come up with. It kind of comes from this broader idea of auto ML, which is auto machine learning. And the idea of that is uh, allowing people who don't necessarily have the machine learning expertise to fine tune a model on their own to train a model in a sort of automated way. There are lots of ways to do this um, and it gets mixed levels of success. Um, but there are some good examples of it. Uh, Google has kind of a well-known AutoML platform. Um, and basically it's the idea behind it is if you upload your data and tell us what you want the model to do with that data, our system will do all of the work for you in determining the, the right kind of model that it needs, the right kind of uh, parameters that it needs for training um, and sort of take all of the required background knowledge out of the process as much as possible. Um, so auto NLP is our, our, our own effort 
to do that. Um, and we've been talking about the community. A large reason that, why this is possible is because we'll have so many community pre-trained models on the hub that can be used as a starting place for transfer learning a model on a particular uh, on a particular user's data. Um, so yeah, it's something that we're developing. Uh, we should be um, kind of announcing relatively soon. Um, and I'm excited to see how it's received because I think it'll all make this kind of technology accessible to a lot more people. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I am personally a fan of AutoML uh, in general. Uh, I recently wrote an article on uh, traditionally trained data scientists versus AutoML. And if AutoML will, you know, over time replace that traditionally trained data scientist, right, in some form or fashion, right? And that brings me to a good point, right? Because you're kind of in the middle of two worlds there, right? You are a traditionally trained data scientist, but you are really working on, you know, that democratization of NLP, getting NLP in the hands of everyone, right? Pre-trained models, right? The transfer learning, um, the, the auto NLP feature we just discussed. So I'd love to get your perspective on that. Yeah, well, um, I think NLP is rapidly changing, right? It's rapidly uh, developing the way that we, we create models, the way that we adapt them particular tasks. I think there's so much room for growth and development and so much uh, potential that, you know, I'm not too worried about there being a lot of interesting things for people who have the skills to work on. I don't really see a downside to making the technology as, as accessible to as many people as possible. And I guess that's kind of my, my mentality is make it the technology as broadly accessible as, as possible. And then the people who want to work on the new tech will always have new tech to work on. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly, I like that. Yeah. Um, okay, so I wanna get into one thing here because I know this is something that you know a lot of people talk to me about. Uh, I am always you know, kind of interested in this piece and it is how people are using Hugging Face today in the real world, right? Um, now, when I say the real world, I mean real life you know, business use cases. So, I see so many people doing really cool things, you know, whether it's with, uh, you know, BERT, GPT, uh, but it's a lot of hobby projects. But can you talk through a couple of real life business use cases? You don't have to name company names or anything like that, uh, unless you want to, of course, if you want to, if you want to throw that out there. But if you could just talk through a couple real life business use cases that that you see, you know, clients using uh, Hugging Face today for, and you know, using it. Uh, value to gain value, right? To, to make money, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, I'll say, um, for listeners that are familiar with the, the Gartner hype cycle, uh, it is kind of a common trend with the development of new technology where, um, initially you have a huge amount of hype, um, and, you know, sort of flashy projects. Um, and then the hype dies off and very gradually that technology, um, becomes more efficient and useful for actual, productivity and use cases in the real world. And I, I don't think machine learning or NLP or transformers are any exception to that. Uh, I think most of the stuff that you see that gets a lot of, lot, lot of publicity at least um, is kind of flashy showy stuff that might not be monetizable at this stage. But I think the rate at which it is becoming monetizable and useful um, is much quicker than, than other technologies, at least uh, as I perceive it. Um, so 
I mean, the, tr the transformer was developed not two years ago and Google is using it in almost every search to understand queries better um, and to help people find search results. And according to them, it's actually had a huge impact on the, the quality of their search results. Now they're not using Hugging Face, it's their own, uh, BERT was their own thing. So they're probably using their own internal tools, but there are plenty of people who are, are, are using our text. Um, I know of one company, uh, for example, who specializes in analyzing traffic to websites on the web in order to anticipate things like geopolitical risks. So anticipating a, a terrorist attack or um, a military action or uh, things like that, where if they see a surge in traffic to a particular set of pages, they can they can with some confidence try to predict if something significant in the world has happened or is about to happen. And that NLP is a really active part of that um, because they need to be able to analyze the content that is being trafficked in order to interpret the surge of traffic. Another example of that would be, again, without going into specific companies, in in uh, there are a lot of finance companies that are using NLP to analyze social media or um, news or even their own internal proprietary conversations um, as a signal for trading. Um, and that's, that's something that is extremely lucrative and it is widely used and where the latest cutting edge transformers are always or, or frequently implemented um, to get a little bit of an edge in that uh, predictive signal. No, yeah, for sure. And I think, uh, I think, you know, you mentioned some really, some really cool, interesting use cases there. And, and the reason why I wanted to hit upon that is because there really is, you know, there is a feeling sometimes that, you know, it, all these things are great, but they're, they're mostly for hobby projects. And I know, and of course, you know, that that's not true, right? There is people using things right? Like hugging face um, and, and making money from it, right? <laughs> They're actually turning a profit by using this for their own specific use case, right? So uh, I like to, to put that out there because, you know, that's what we're trying to do on this podcast is to show people how AI can be used for them, right? And, and although writing, you know, Star Trek quotes is uh, somewhat interesting. I don't think it's specifically, uh, you know, that great of a, of a use case, right? So um, no, that's great that you mentioned that stuff. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, we, were, we were discussing like GPT, which is open AI's model versus, versus BERT. And I think that's a difference that you'll see is um, open AI has these, they're really good at creating publicity around their publications. Um, and they always have these really cool flashy demos that kind of give you the feeling that like technology is magical in a sense almost. Mm -hmm. um, but I think when it comes down to the stuff that actually is practically useful, it might be less sexy of an application, um, but models like BERT tend to be a lot more useful for these companies in actually helping them gather insights uh, and, and, and monetize and create real business value. For sure. Um, so I'm going to go through, I have, I have two questions that I'm going to close with that with, with all my guests, right. As we, as we build up here um, and I'd like to, to hit you up, right. Uh, with my two questions. So first I want to say, what is the number one piece of advice you have for someone looking in, looking to get into this career path? Yeah, I would say 
um, do projects that interest you, not MOOCs. Like, and I'll expand on that a little bit. MOOCs, like the these online courses, they're really valuable starting places to kind of get like a broad overview of like the de different technology and ideas that are out there. But the way that you really become good at good at this stuff or uh, kind of learn where your knowledge gaps are is to actually just do a project that sounds exciting to you. Say, I'm gonna, you know, figure out, I'm gonna train my own sentiment classifier. And at first that might, that project might be following a tutorial. Um, and then as you get more, uh, better and better at it, you might say, okay, well, I'm gonna incorporate this new idea into this tutorial that I did and build on it. Um, and then upload the project to GitHub and show it off and have a public place where uh, you can link people to it on your resume or whatnot. Um, you know, I, I went to, to Harvard for my master's and it wasn't because I had a 4.0 GPA. I think I had like a 3.68 or something. It was because I had done a lot of independent study and projects and internships and, and things like that, that kind of showed not only that I was passionate about the field, but also that I had the capacity and the initiative to learn it, or at least that was the, the picture that I tried to, to paint. Yeah, that I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, getting your hands on, on you know, get, getting your hands dirty, actually building uh, projects, whatever it may be, is the best way to learn. Um, I mean, it, nothing beats that. And, and you know, you can you can you know do as many courses as you want, but actually, you know, getting your 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 hands on keyboard and building something yourself, there, there's nothing that's more valuable than that. And and I think as well, you know always be learning, right? Always be learning. There's always stuff to learn. There's too much for, for one person to know. I know that, but always try to pick up something and learn, right? So yeah, I completely agree with you on all of that. I, a lot of people will ask about like certificates, like which MOOC certificate is going to look the best. I'd say really, I don't know if a company is going to care that much about a, a certificate, honestly. Um, but if they see projects that you did on your GitHub page that you just did of your own accord because they were passionate and interesting, that will catch an eye. So focus on that. Yeah, for sure. No, absolutely. Um, okay. So my second question is, you know, let's, let's get, let's get a little deep here. Philo let's get a little philosophical. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so what does AI mean for you? And I don't mean in the literal sense or the definition of AI. I just mean, you know, what does it mean to you? Right. Uh, you know, from a vision standpoint, like what is your, 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 your meaning of artificial intelligence? Oh boy, yeah. Um, I think artificial intelligence, um, it's kind of a useful catch-all term, but it can also sometimes be a frustrating um, and ambiguous term. I, I came across a reference once to this, this book about, you know, this old 19th century book about calculating machines, about these calculator devices, and they were referred to as intelligent. They didn't have electricity, they were mechanical, but they were referred to as intelligent because they did more information processing than a person thought they could do at the time. So I think in some sense, like artificial intelligence is just making computers do things that right now only we can do or that they can't do very well. That doesn't get to the deeper, broader question of what does it mean for a machine to become intelligent? What does it mean for BERT to understand a piece of text versus just processing it and spitting out an output? I think those are all for me, intractable questions, and, and I don't really know how to approach them. And I don't know how you involve things like consciousness. Like, does consciousness play a role in intelligence? Do you have to be conscious to truly understand something? Um, or do you just have to process the information efficiently enough? I don't know. Um, 
But I think for, from a practical sense to me, AI is about making computers better at stuff that they're not good at right now. Yeah, for sure. I like that. I said that, uh, you know, do you have to be conscious to be intelligent? So, you know, all right, Joe, it's been amazing chatting with you today. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I'm pretty sure we used the word sexy twice. So <laughs> where are you going to get another AI podcast that uses the word sexy twice in one episode? I don't think you're going to find it. Now, I think we've blown away the competition. <laughs> and uh, thanks again for, for being our very first ever guest on AI and You. So every episode, I want to highlight something cool I've recently came across from a real-world application specific to the theme of the episode. One very cool application that I've recently came across is called Grok. Grok is an app built to summarize Slack channel conversations. So for anyone that's an avid Slack user, you will know that scrolling, reading, and understanding what is going on in missed conversations in Slack channels or threads can take time. The guys behind Grok wanted people to get back into the conversation quickly and easily. Their solution leverages the power of GPT-3, as well as their own personal application building experience. So imagine joining a Slack channel having missed a week of conversations. Grok allows you to quickly get caught up, providing you with a summarization of what you missed. The founders of Grok are Ryan Hitchler and Bailey Carlson. And you can check out their app and join the waitlist at grok.centro.rocks. It's a really cool application. All right, everyone, it's been a pleasure. And until next month, stay tuned and we will continue to explore how AI can help you.